The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by Melrose Health. Founded in 1979, Melrose Health has been delivering improved health over three decades by developing natural, delicious and innovative health foods from the best natural and organic ingredients. Their healthy kitchen oils range has just launched and includes my favourites, liquid coconut oil, grass-fed ghee and avocado oil. Visit melrosehealth.com.au or check out at Melrose Health on Instagram to learn more. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 211 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Katie Pettuccini from Holistic Endurance to explore natural fueling strategies for endurance events and beyond. You will learn the significance of practicing in training, including how soon to start before a race, and practical considerations such as logistics, climate, and whether liquid fuels, solids, or a combination is best. We also discuss some of the most common mistakes athletes make and share with you our favorite fueling options. Hi, Katie, and welcome back to the show. Hey, Steph. Excited to be here. Very good. It's one of our favorite topics today, talking about all things fueling and, of course, race day planning. So I'd love to get your perspective as coach as to when you start to talk to your athletes about race day fueling and when we, you know, start the process of practicing that in training. Yeah, I think it's funny, uh, back to your first comment about how we are excited by it. (laughs) I'm (laughs) <laughs> Maybe athletes not so much. Um, yeah. Some athletes uh, come ready prepared and ask the questions early on, but I would say vast majority do leave it to the last minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's probably the first thing we need to avoid, to avoid pitfalls. Uh, there's absolutely no point training the house down and, and nailing everything from a performance point of view if you don't pay respect to a nutrition plan which will absolutely undo all that great training if you don't get it right. Um, I think sometimes there's a little bit of a delay in uh, initiating a nutrition plan for a race 
sometimes through overwhelm, not knowing where to start, not knowing who to see or who to talk to, uh, which is what this podcast is about, uh, which will be perfect. And there are ideal situations and it will be different for different distances of event. So if we talk about the, the long distance, big events, multi-day or Ironman, I'd be wanting to have a race nutrition plan looked at and considered 15 weeks out. Mm-hmm. For a couple of reasons, um, it gives plenty of time to tweak, plenty of time to practice in training, especially if it's someone's first time doing one of those events and they don't have a previous plan to work off and they don't know what works for them. Uh, it means that we can, if necessary, do further data collection for really specific personalized results. And we have time for those results to that testing to happen, get the results back and then implement the plan. So that's my rule of thumb for, for long course and then revisit that every four to six weeks based on how training's going and then put the final plan in place just before those peak weeks of training so that the final plan is rehearsed in training um, in the final two peak, two peak weeks. Yeah, I think you make some good points there because obviously 15 weeks out, you're not necessarily doing, you know, the volume or intensity that looks like race day, but the the opposite is then, you know, if you wait until those peak weeks, what if shit goes wrong? Like you haven't got time to readjust and then it's this huge stressor and, you know, this extra kind of job that you've got on your plate so close to race day when your priorities should be really elsewhere by that point in time. Absolutely. You just need to save yourself that additional stress because mm-hmm. there's plenty of other things that will come up and that you need to put your focus and attention to and you want to know that you've got it hands down. And in long course events, uh, it's particularly easy to forget the plan, uh, get distracted, have brain fog and go, did I feel 40 minutes ago? I don't remember. Uh, so if you're really in a routine and familiar with what you need to do, you're less likely to get flustered which is a great thing to avoid. And then for, say, half Ironman, an Olympic probably can look at it at 10 to 12 weeks mm-hmm. and sprint. Uh, not many people would need to fuel during a sprint and that's quite um, an easy thing to manage, honestly, probably just a couple of weeks out. Yeah, yeah, awesome. I love that. And I think, you know, just thinking about a few things that you said there around um, remembering the fueling plan, like. Um, I don't think that someone that's new to this kind of space, especially when it's like natural fueling and, you know, being fat adapted rather than trying to cram in 300 calories an hour, um, you know, it's, it's not their natural or their default. It's not something that they've, as you said, had time to practice before or a lot of experience in. So you've only done it a couple of times. There's so much room for like accidental error, Whereas if it's your new norm, you spend a good couple of months learning about becoming fat adapted, why your fueling plan is probably a quarter of what you've been told or tried in the past, and then understanding all the um, practical considerations that we're going to share today. Like, again, you should be, like, I think, you know, you race to race. You don't race to plan on when you're eating and, and, and drinking. Like, it's not about 
the fueling, although it is a significant part. So you want to be able to enjoy the experience, not have like texted down your arm of what you're doing every 45 minutes because you can't remember and it's so foreign to you. Yes, and I think that's one of the reasons a lot of people are put off, uh, say, nutrition planning or don't see the importance. The common uh, uh, feedback I get is, oh, but I'm not lean, I'm not trying to podium or I'm not going to pump first. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I'm just doing it for fun. I'm like, yeah, if you want to have fun, you're going to want to get your nutrition right because it's oh, not yeah. going to <laughs> <laughs> It's going to be horrific. <laughs> and the same goes for, I know I mentioned triathlon events, same for running events. So a marathon, we look for ultra, we look at starting planning 15 weeks and then a half marathon around 10 to 12 and mm-hmm. so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. duration specific or distance specific. Hmm. Um, and so what would you normally, like how would you start that conversation for someone that's either a complete beginner or new to our world of being fat adapted and fueling? Uh, so I'm a systems and processes gal. And, uh, <laughs> really? <laughs> one worksheet mm. <laughs> that I get uh, athletes to work through. Cool. And that starts with just documenting what they have done in the past and mm-hmm. noting what worked and what didn't work if they've got that experience. Yeah. If they don't have that experience, then we go, okay, what have you done recently in training? And if they don't have that, then we formulate a plan for training to practice. So they're the three places to to start from. Yeah, and I guess you see all three as do I. I I think at the moment my more common client is definitely someone who's tried the 300 calories an hour or the take as much as you can tolerate, (laughs) you know, until you can't anymore kind of model. And they, they, you know, they don't need a degree in nutrition to understand, okay, this is not making sense. There has to be another way to then obviously start to understand fat adaptation and metabolic efficiency and, you know, utilizing your body's metabolism and, and those processes that can help you on, on race day and then you're complementing the exogenous carbohydrate. Um, yeah, like for them, that's really, you know, a new language. It's night and day. And when there is a, a big race on the cards, I think it's important to be able to have that conversation. All right, what hasn't worked? And let's talk about what are some of the signs that might have um, this, this athlete might have experienced if their current or previous fueling plan wasn't working for them yeah you bring up a good point um sometimes i find that athletes aren't necessarily pinpointing their nutrition or hydration plan as the problem Mm -hmm. so they might have had a poor result yeah uh, might put it down to the conditions oh it was just really hot or uh, um, I pushed too hard on the bike. And, look, that might be true too. Mm-hmm. But um, there's probably other elements at play as well. And so I think it's important for everyone to recognise and be curious about well, what really did play into that result. Uh, same goes for a successful result. Uh, let's say you nail it and you do really well. I think it's important to give credit to what you did with hydration, nutrition, as well as your pacing and probably your consistent training in the lead up. You know, your success comes from it's multifaceted. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to look at all those elements that bring together. Yeah, absolutely. I see that all the time. Like someone's race report, um, 
totally ignoring that pardon the French, they've fucked up their fueling. <laughs> like over and over and over again. It's like, when will the penny drop? <laughs> I did. <laughs> hey, it's my show. <laughs> um, yeah, so talking about things to notice and identify with, uh, for example, gas, bloating, mm-hmm. diarrhea, uh, or general gastrointestinal upset is not something that's considered quote unquote normal that I feel athletes should have to put up with. And that's yeah. a sign that your nutrition needs to change. Uh, nausea is not a good one. Cramping to pay attention to. Uh, general fatigue, hitting the wall and not holding paces that you normally would in training. You don't quite understand why you weren't able to execute them. Uh, That's in a race scenario. And then in training, there are a bunch of things to pay attention to, to know whether a fueling plan is working or not working for you. But to know that you've got to keep good records, that this is the little caveat. (laughs) There's got to be a food diary of some kind or training notes of some kind to really look at, okay, well, how did you execute a session? What fuel did you have? And how does that compare to the week before? Um, and in terms of like, let's say you had had an additional five grams of carbohydrates per hour. How did that impact your recovery and your soreness, your fatigue that day, and then your general output on the training day itself? Uh, usually if, uh, if it's a brick that we're talking about with triathletes, you'll know if your nutrition plan has worked well in training, depending on how you feel for your run off the bike. Mm. And not to, not to be brushed over because people are so disconnected. Like I get it in clinic when I'll ask someone how they feel after a certain food and they look at you like you've got two heads. Like they've never, ever in their life thought about, oh, when I eat X, I need to go to sleep or I run to the bathroom. And the same thing applies in training. Like, you know, how do you know what works if you're like disconnected or you don't take notes that acknowledge when I did X, this happened, or I felt my best when I did Y. And it doesn't need to be a huge investment of time, which I think is one of the kind of stories that people tell themselves that prevent them from making those notes and popping it in training peaks or Strava or in their mobile phone or on a piece of paper. Um, But I think it's such a simple thing to do from early on, both in day-to-day, like what you're putting on your plate, but definitely when you're in this race day fueling conversation because, you know, how do you know what's working? And and then on the flip side, like when something does work, write that shit down because you want to be able to replicate that. Yeah. Yes, you want to replicate that stuff mm. sure. I find it really fascinating. Like obviously I've been in this space for quite a while and um, – the whole sort of 270 or 300 calories an hour always comes up because it's that top end where people are like, okay, if I want to go faster, I need more carbs. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to physically force myself to consume 270 calories every hour. And I literally speak to people, like I meet people that um, have that in their plan who do that and continue to vomit as they run along and continue to put that volume of fuel in their system and for me 
Awesome stuff. <laughs> Me, it's mind blowing, but it's interesting when you talk to someone about digestion. Like it's quite simple when you look at firstly the, digest- the digestive cost of consuming carbohydrates, food, calories, and when there's the added, you know, d- variable of intensity. So there's this, you know, in intensity your blood flow is going out from the gut to the heart, legs, and lungs, not into the gut to digest. So why would we try and put all this digestive stress in an equation where there's already intensity and output? Like it it just doesn't make sense. But, of course, there's a lot of unlearning for many people to do. Yeah, absolutely agree. And if you look at it from the flip side, why uh, do we want to be constantly putting fuel in which takes away um, that blood from the muscles. Mm. Uh, so every time they have a gel, it's like it's, there's there's thinking of it as oh, I'm fueling myself, but at the same time, you are taking away capacity from heart, lungs, muscles. Yeah. Uh, so that timing is crucial as part of a, a nutrition plan, and that's probably something until people get guidance that people, athletes are unaware of. Like they say, oh, yeah, I just I have this many gels or bars in a race. I'm like, okay, what time intervals and at what point? And mm, how much? Mm. Yeah, what point of the course is another thing to consider. So with that heart rate conversation, if you know there are significant climbs in your race, then you want to time your fueling around that when you know your heart rate is going to be, uh, take the opportunity when it's a bit lower for that digestion. Yeah, so let's talk more about that because I think that's a really common mistake. You know, if we look at, I think when you read online 90 grams of carbs an hour or 60 grams of carbs an hour or 270 calories an hour, people assume that it's literally in one minute. Let me inhale all this right now and that's going to account for the hour ahead. Talk to us about why that's a mistake and what might happen when terrain and heart rate are factored in. Yeah, so with that intensity, um, uh, the absorption is diminished or it makes mm-hmm. it much harder. Um, mm-hmm. And with so much stress to pump blood everywhere, you're likely to get gastrointestinal symptoms, mm-hmm. whether that's diarrhea or gas or feeling faint. Uh, and and um, getting that distended belly as well. And oh, I lost my train of thought. So, with a yeah, with a plan like you can drip feed yes. um, for a more measured blood sugar management control, uh, as well as helping your gastrointestinal system, and that drip feed can occur if you're working with a course that's quite hilly and undulating. I would plan a race nutrition around the course, not mm-hmm. duration. I totally agree. I think drip drip feeding or drip fueling is a really important takeaway because if you've been given X grams or X calories, like I, my advice is not to try and hit, have that in one hit. That's too much of a digestive cost and stress and that whole tug of war concept that we've been talking to you about. Um, but yeah, don't take it at the bottom of the hill. It's going to be pear shaped. <laughs> so you need to be able to understand the course that you're running or racing or cycling or performing on. And of course, things might change on race day, but that's why you also need an adaptable plan, which, which we'll get to. <laughs> yeah, I know. This is the thing. There's so many elements that mm. uh, aren't thought of. And I think it's 
much better to go in uh, over-prepared and just have those um, plan Bs up your sleeve. Yeah, so I think amount of fuel is a big one um, and, and definitely, yeah, like the, the factoring in the terrain and the heart rate and being a little bit strategic with that. Um, but in, in the same vein, amount of fuel is, yeah, spending the time teaching your body to use or need as little as possible, not the old, you know, conventional wisdom of more is more. Yes, and this is where the conversation gets to it's, it depends because if an athlete hasn't become fat adapted mm-hmm. or they're just at the start of the journey and they've got a key event in 10 weeks, mm-hmm. there's going to be this conversation around cost-benefit yep. of how hard do we push fat adaptation uh, to and remove a little bit of the intensity from the program to allow that to happen? Or do we allow and embrace the fact that that athlete is just not wired to uh, burn fat for fuel? That's a predominant fuel source at uh, race pace and plan for that particular race to be of a higher carbohydrate, less than what they would do from a conventional point of view, but not what a, uh, a fat-adapted athlete might do and find that grey area for that athlete. Whereas if we're talking about an athlete that has done the work to become fat-adapted and able to fuel off, um, you know, minimal carbohydrates per hour and still feel good, uh, then we're going to have a very different conversation. Yep, really important point. It all depends on how much time you've got and what your metabolism looks like. So, you know, it's okay for this to be, you know, a new approach for you on race day, but it still might be higher than what your end plan looks like in another 12 weeks or in your next race. So, yeah, definitely keep that in mind that it's not about rushing it because if you're not fat adapted and you're trying to fuel off too little, that will also end up as a pretty unpleasant unpleasant experience that could have been avoided if you were just realistic about where your metabolism is at by the time you get to race day. Yeah, I remember having to give myself that reality check after mm-hmm. being out of the race scene for a little bit and getting back into it. I had to do a race plan that was about 20 grams per hour of carbohydrates higher than what I would have done in the past. And that was pretty hard to wrap my head around because I was so good at racing uh, on lower carbohydrates and very well fat adapted, but that changed. And that was, I didn't enjoy that because like I knew that it was going to be towing the line for what I could handle. Luckily, not luckily. I did the work, but I didn't have gastrointestinal issues because it wasn't conventional numbers high, just mm-hmm. higher than what I would have done in the past. And so coming from the flip side, knowing that I've had a highly stressful period, slightly um, untrained mm-hmm. and just knew I had to respect that I needed more. Otherwise, it would have got pretty ugly. Yeah. Again, an important lesson because fueling plans aren't static. You know, they can go both ways. So ideally, if you're in the sport and you're injury-free and you're continuing to, you know, train after a period of recovery, you should be able to get to the point where you need less. But obviously, if you've had time off, if you've been smashing the carbs, if you've had um, injuries, um, illnesses, metabolic conditions, then yeah, you might have to look down the barrel of a very different scenario in the short term until you rebuild. And that's a really important, honest conversation to have about where you're at at that point in time. 
Yeah, absolutely. So what about the types of fuel? Yeah. I was going to say nitty-gritty of um, amounts per okay. hour because yep. we broke around it. Um, so you mentioned conventional ranges uh, recommend 90 grams an hour. For those unfamiliar with what that looks like, a standard gel is going to have between 20, 23 grams of carbohydrates per portion. Uh, so if you imagine trying to get three gels in per hour or more, that's mm-hmm. pretty epic. <laughs> Mm-hmm. along with whatever other food you want to do. And you that's all you're going to be doing in that hour. I find it unfathomable how that's even possible. Uh, but what we're talking about with well-fat-adapted uh, athletes who have wired their metabolism to utilise fat as a preferential fuel, even at race intensity, uh, we're talking about closer to 20 to 30 grams of carbohydrates per hour, which from a logistical point of view and the pressure on the digestive system is much more favourable. Mm, absolutely. You've done athletes on even lower than that, haven't you? Oh, I wouldn't know. No, not, not. No, I mean, that's only ever going to come from metabolic testing. So I think that's where like, you know, obviously we can test a lot in training and some people find they need very little, but obviously then we're looking at the training sessions that replicate race day intensity because we know our carbohydrate requirements are always relative to intensity. Then there are usually other variables on race day, which we've spoken about as well. So there's the rare example of people who, you know, do some metabolic testing and really don't burn through much carbohydrate at high intensity um but i would still be looking at the fact that it's it's never are we burning zero percent carbohydrate and 100 percent fat it's always like a seesaw kind of arrangement so it can be beneficial to still have a really small amount of exogenous carbohydrate drip fed in because that also helps us burn fat it stokes the fire that is the fat burning element so i think that a few years ago when becoming fat adapted was vogue there were like blogs and social media posts and lots of ego statements around people doing four hours or whatever distance on nothing and i just think that looks really unintelligent and it doesn't actually factor in the physiology of fat burning not to mention the flow on effect of being that depleted like it's not about no fuel I think we've got to keep our smarts about us and look at, yeah, like let me figure out how little I need, not how much. And, of course, experiment with that and get the, that delicate balance right. Yeah, it's a huge um, oxidative stress demand and that's why we see so many burnt out and sick athletes, unfortunately. Mm, in the extremes. <laughs> They're always in the extremes. <laughs> mm, cool. So you can ask me about types of fuel. Yeah, just on the topic of common mistakes, I wanted to get your thoughts on what else you see in types of fuels, whether it's different sugars or happy to brand slam here, (laughs) 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 only if you're comfortable. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, No, for context for the listeners, this is something that I've played around with and and done so with you now for, what, 10 years? Yeah, it'd have to be. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, coming from previously doing um, 
triathlon and endurance for five years before that in a conventional way and really forced to look at a different approach because it wasn't working for me and it wasn't working for many people around me. Mm -hmm. But at the time, there really weren't products available uh, that didn't have a high level of fructose, which is usually the inflammatory factor that leads to gastrointestinal distress. So the gels would be higher in fructose than there would be glucose. And so there weren't many options back in the day. There was this great brand, Vega, and that was our number one option. <laughs> it was pretty good, but it wasn't great. And that's where Steph's recipe the of Freedom Fuel came about. If you're not aware of that, Google it. Uh, so you can make your own homemade gels to minimize the fructose. And that was and has been a game changer for my clients, your clients, and you and I. Just brilliant. Um, knowing that you can make a homemade gel and have it has the same constitution of uh, carbohydrates and in this case some fats from MCT uh, and electrolyte profile as a standard gel off the shelf so you're also saving money which is brilliant so yeah in addition to utilizing like a homemade gel then I've seen a lot of success with homemade bars from your recipes and then for those that want to utilize uh, bars that are you know, off the shelf and packaged food. Uh, I do like the hammer bars. So they're more of a raw food bar, again, low in fructose. They do have some fats in there for stabilized blood sugar. They're soft and easy to digest. They're usually my key go-tos. And then for those that don't want to do homemade gels, my number one recommendation is V-Fuel. And that is also a no fructose gel and has uh, MCT in it for blood sugar control and adding those those fats. There is a secret ingredient recipe in V-Fuel. Obviously, I don't know what it is, but it's the only gel that's ever given me energy and not made me feel flat. Yeah. Uh, like I just learned all my matches from having a gel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they have some beautiful recovery nutrients in there as well, which I think are naturally anti-inflammatory. So that is an extra benefit, of course. Um, the conversation around fructose is really fascinating for me. As you mentioned, it's highly inflammatory. So, you know, in the space where we're talking about quitting sugar, we're actually really, actually specifically talking about quitting fructose, number one. Uh, it also causes a lot of water to be, to be drawn into the gut, which is why it's associated with the gastrointestinal issues that are far too common but very avoidable when it comes to endurance sports. But what I find the most fascinating is the only reason why fructose was ever brought into the equation is because you you cannot transport 90 grams of glucose in your body. Mm. You need to have this two-to-one ratio. So it's two molecules of glucose, one molecule of fructose to get you up to those really high volumes. Long story short, they're transported around the body by different glucose transporters, so GLUT4 and GLUT3. I think I'm going back to my... Um, <laughs> I'm going back to um, exercise physiology from decades ago, so I might not be remembering everything accurately. But the point of my story is, is the reason why we 
saw the significance of fructose is because we're having these conversations around more, take more. So we can't take more glucose, but we can take this combination of sugars to get us to these really high numbers. And then magically, Gatorade 2 to 1, glucose to fructose. Um, Endura is 2 to 1, glucose to fructose. Nearly every single sports nutrition product that was around back then, I'm talking probably early 2000s um, or before, was two to one. And that's because we're still in that conversation of take more, figure out how to, to consume more, which is the undoing for most people. So the opposite is true, yeah? When you're fat adapted and you're only needing small amounts, you can do that with glucose alone because you're well under your capacity of transporting the glucose around the body. So fructose is irrelevant and there's most of your problems solved. So it's great news. Yeah, huge game changer for me and many others. Mm. Um, remember, actually, the other option for people is, you know, liquid fuel. So coming, mixing a powder with water. V fuel have a great one, and, and then as you can would be my top two recommendations if I'm putting some brands out there. Again, you have to trial this for yourself and see what works for you. So there's been plenty of episodes on this show about the gut microbiome and from that I'm sure listeners can appreciate how individual this process is and we all have different levels of bacteria and we're going to respond differently to different levels of of sugars um, and combinations of fats and protein. Yeah, always multifactorial for sure. Yes, try those out um, and then, yeah, electrolytes is a, is a different conversation. Yeah, well, just before we go there, I was just thinking what, we, what would be really important to discuss is um, how to make the decision between liquids and solids because you've mentioned some great options, both, both homemade and store-bought, which I think are important to have both up our sleeve. Um, but what about if we go back to that intensity conversation um, and then, you know, we look at our capacity to digest solids versus liquids under intensity but also iron man you know you're going to need food right so we often see a combination of liquids and solids but i'll let you expand on that yes uh so for example if we're talking about a sprint race mm-hmm. i would go for a liquid carb or drink mm-hmm. or gel over a bar correct much higher intensity harder to chew and swallow at that high level of respiratory rate and heart rate uh, just not a smart idea in, in my eyes. I'll be choking. Whereas <laughs> Ironman <laughs> Intensity, uh, you want, you can handle eating solid foods and be recommended from a hunger point of view as well. And that flavor fatigue you get from gels and that sweetness for 8 to 17 hours. Yeah. Uh, so the. the The mix of fuel I like doing for a number of reasons, psychological being one of them, uh, different stimulation and different taste so you don't get that flavour, fatigue or the nausea from having so much sweetness because with um, making your own bars, buying bars or making even muffins, you can make them more on the savoury side to balance out all that sweetness when you're doing really long events. Uh, I know people that have, and you know, when you get into the ultra trail or trail running community, I find they're very much more creative with their fuels. So beef jerky or liver pate or mm. um, some prosciutto. <laughs> like the options are endless, really. Uh, you find what works for you. And when you're doing long events like that, that mental stimulation of knowing 
you've got a food that you look forward to rather than avoiding fuel because you don't feel like it can make a really big difference. Um, I like to, in an, a long distance event, I like to have athletes have a, a liquid carb from a drink, uh, a bar and a gel. So they're rotating the three of them. And in that liquid carb would also be electrolytes or they might have it separately. That way with a mixed terrain race, you can use your liquid carbohydrates uh, at higher intensity or climbing intervals and then your solids on flats or, or descents when you've got the skills. So that's my reason for mixing it up, but it's so individual. Mm. Then you've got the conversation of how do I carry it all? And that's important to factor in from a logistics point of view. It's all well and good to come up with a nutrition plan, practice it in training and go, yep, that works really well. I have good energy. I'm pulling up um, from training well. I'm not too sore. But then you get to your race day and like, how am I going to fit all this on my bike? <laughs> um, how am I going to carry it? So that's <laughs> another major benefit mm. of being fat is you, you don't have those issues. You're carrying much less fuel. Totally. I laugh because I still always get sent pictures of a bike with like 25 gels taped to the top tube. And I just, I just never get like a, a sick of that kind of hilarious conversation. And so like, that's right. There are people that are still doing this. Like I can't wait till they see the light, so to speak. I strapped with electrical tape to top tubes. And I remember once when I was spectating one of your races, um, I'll never forget the guy that pulled into transition and got a cold sausage roll out of his transition bag. And I was like, hey, what the hell? Like it's pastry in the back of your throat. You must be choking. At least he stopped. But B, what an interesting choice for race day. Like mind-blowing. Um, I must admit that. Uh, I wasn't close enough, but I had a bloody good chuckle. In saying that, though, back to your comment about ultras, like I'm a massive potato chip girl, like that's my one weakness. Um, My clients love hearing they can get those beautiful coconut oil potato chips and integrate it into their plan because, yeah, we want savoury, like you say. Like ultras are full days or more for a lot of people and you can't look down the barrel of just sweet food. It's going to be messy and you know the way we think about where solids would be integrated is would you be eating a meal if you weren't racing so you know for a lot of us that are fat adapted we don't eat for five or so hours so if it's a race under five you know liquids as a general rule could definitely work of course once you've tested that but as we go beyond five in the real world you'd be eating so that's where we think okay solids are going to be beneficial and then the longer we go, the more we need to get creative, as you say, and look at combinations so that we don't get to the point where we're like, oh, my God, I cannot take any more on board and things unravel as a result. Yeah, the potato chip one's a great recommendation because it's lightweight as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an excellent suggestion. Uh, I just thought of something we should probably touch on uh, around the intensity picture to give people a concept of what we mean by uh, at intensity and needing perhaps more carbohydrates than you would at a low intensity. Uh, you might have heard the term on this show crossover point, COP. So the crossover point is where you're burning more carbohydrates than you are fat for fuel and it's your preferential source. Uh, so it's, we want to find 
find out what that heart rate is. And above that point is where you're going to, that's what we call the higher intensity and you're going to need higher volumes of carbohydrate and or calories. If you're doing an event and you can stay below that crossover point, your needs are going to be much less Mm -hmm. as well. So that's irrespective of um, the benefit of being fat adapted is you can push that crossover point to a higher heart rate and that's next level fat adaptation, which is really beneficial. Mm. Yeah, for sure. So that's some good information that you can get via metabolic testing, which you do with your exercise physiologist or your coach might have someone that they work with. Um, but you'd also be able to use your MAF heart rate if you didn't have that in the meantime? Yeah, yeah aerobic threshold or MAF will uh, also be a great measure of whether you should up your carbohydrates and be fluid with the plan. So this is a, actually a good point. Um, anything can happen on race day. The winds might blow. The heat might be 10 degrees hot, hotter than you realised. Uh, you might have a slow leaking flap that you can't fix on the bike. And all those things might compound to um, a higher heart rate than you'd planned for based yeah. on your training. And that's where you're going to need to be adaptable. And if you notice that your average heart rate is sitting higher, then you're also going to need some additional fuel to counterbalance that. Yes, thank you for reminding me. So that's the plan B conversation that we touched on before because I see too many people go in with a plan and all they carry is what they're taking and yes, their heart rate's higher, they drop a bottle, they're out there for longer because of technical issues. And that's when things can really sadly unravel because you could have actually had a plan B. Firstly, carrying extra, like all my athletes know they carry more than what they're aiming to consume, but also being adaptable. So not being so fixed on your plan that you're that person vomiting down the side of the run course or unprepared for the variables that are no doubt going to appear. And the longer you race, the more it will all happen to you at some point in time. Yeah, I mean, for the Aussie listeners that will, even international that have come to Australia to race in the last one to two years, you'll know that a triathlon won't always be a triathlon. And that year in Bustleton where we were swimming with sharks for the start, um, mm-hmm. we swam for a bit and then they kept us on the beach for about an hour before we started the bike and then the following year was another incident and it was delayed oh but it didn't even swim at all and that's a really great example where I was talking to athletes afterwards and like I don't I you know I stuck to my plan I don't know what what went wrong and it's like well everything started an hour later yeah even though you were quote-unquote rest on the beach you were probably a little bit anxious and burning through a little bit of um uh, fuel from that anxiety and yeah you don't plan for that <laughs> that's mm-hmm. not in a race plan oh there could be a shark therefore the swim's going to get delayed for an hour but it has to be in your bus plan, plan from now on <laughs> um yeah so just trying to be flexible yeah. uh, for any uh situation that comes about yeah love it Love it. Um, one other practical consideration I was thinking of was the heat. So how does that change um, requirements but also our choices? In an ideal world, you've trained in the heat mm-hmm. or the climate that you're going to be racing in, mm-hmm. if not um, simulated at home at least, um, so that you've got an idea of how your heart rate or your power output changes with those conditions. We all have a different tolerance to heat and how much it will impact us, slow us down or raise our heart rate. Um, 
it's been a heat wave recently and it's been really interesting with athletes comments in training and like oh because it was x degrees higher and hotter and humid I couldn't stick to my math math was just impossible I would have been walking it's like that's the point Mm -hmm. (laughs) your body's telling you it's under additional stress and you need to pull back and so in a race situation uh again respecting that knowing that in the heat if you're a responder to heat that you're going to need uh, to play at that top end of your fuel plan for additional calories and carbohydrates, yep. but also have a, a spectrum, a scale for your electrolyte and fluid plan and be adaptable with that. Yeah, for sure. And of course, our favorite freedom fuel with berries doesn't love the heat. So you've got to factor that in depending on where you're racing. I've had plenty of clients made it without berries i've tried it it's too sweet for me because the berries are obviously really quite tart and they offset the sweetness but you can you can definitely experiment with that but please don't get to the point where you've had got fermented fuel on the bike um because you've forgotten that berries ferment in the heat in the sun (laughs) so that's why v fuel is always a good um, plan b to have practice because if you're going into a climate you need something that's preserved that isn't going to change in that molecular structure like freedom fuel will in in the heat when it's especially long course it's sitting out there for a good part of the day by the time you get to the run yeah well that my strategy for that has been uh they utilize freedom fuel on the bike mm-hmm. uh and they freeze it beforehand yeah. cool like for and then use v fuel on the run yeah which is good for avoiding flavor fatigue and the practicalities yeah. of like especially for a 42 um V fuel is much easier to carry, which a lot of people just like to give themselves that that leeway and to take the pressure off having to have, you know, race belts, which isn't always a preference and usually mm-hmm. the best way to carry freedom fuel for a marathon and beyond. Yeah. 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 Awesome. So cool. Anything else you wanted to add or anything else that pops up? Because I think there's so much information there and Definitely some big takeaways, especially practice, practice, practice. (laughs) Yeah, and I guess to give our listeners a a bit of a buy-in perhaps who haven't been down this road yet and they're curious about the possibilities of what might happen if they do adjust things. Um, I've had plenty of athletes who are quite uh, nervous or resistant to making these changes because for five, two years, whatever it may be, they've they've known a certain way. Mm -hmm. And it's time to do it differently. And I understand that that can be confronting. Um, So the best way to have confidence in this new way of of doing things is to gather that data. So write your comments in your training plan, have you do that. Um, Get laboratory testing if you can. And if you can't, make sure you're doing like field testing and training and a coach will be able to help you with that to get your heart rates right and then match that with um, a plan of fueling per hour. I've seen athletes uh, who previously trained, sorry, raced Ironman at 60 grams of carbohydrates per hour go to 25 grams per hour um, with enhanced performance, definitely not uh, reduced, including professionals. This isn't just a conversation for age groupers. It's very possible to... Uh, be fat adapted and fuel on that lower carbohydrate end as a professional athlete pushing top end. Uh, and there's quite a few uh, pro athletes coming out now and talking about that approach, which is fantastic. 
Yeah, for sure. I love that because I think, unfortunately, the argument around um, the research is someone's typical default when they're looking at all the research around two to one or 300 cows or whatever it might be. Because, of course, there's all the research because it's bloody funded by Gatorade and we all know that clinical trials are very expensive. So we don't have a lot of research in fat adaptation, although, you know, we know Jeff Bolek and Steve Finney and some amazing pioneers are changing that. It takes time to be published in a top-tier journal. So if you wait for the research, you're at least five years behind. Um, but I love that people are now looking to the likes of Sammy Inkerman and uh, Inkerman, sorry, um, Tim Marie. There's so many more that are really pushing the whole fat adaptation, low fueling, um, you know, fix your metabolism kind of conversation. But it is flowing down to our age groupers and, and creating a beautiful change. So, yeah, it's awesome to see. Yeah, if I can do a little plug, I interviewed Nathan Shearer on my podcast and a pro athlete who's gone LCHF day to day and then become fat adapted for his fueling efficiency. He's a data nerd and he's got the um, the lab testing and all those numbers from his training and his FTP and how his output changed race to race when he made those changes. And that's a fantastic conversation for those that perhaps are a little bit skeptical and are data nerds and like to know the the nitty-gritty love it send me the or i'll get the deets and i'll put that um episode in the show notes thank you katie i've loved this conversation um please do let us know where we can find out more about you online and thanks again for your time Thank you. Yes, head to the website, holisticendurance.com.au or Facebook, Instagram, same thing, Holistic Endurance. Uh, Keep an eye out. I am about to launch a new product, which is super exciting, called the Rejuvenation Protocol, which will help you track how effective your uh, training, nutrition, plan has been because we're looking at soreness, fatigue, hydration and all those elements and giving metrics to that and giving you a really do a, uh, an analysis when it comes to creating a race plan about what has worked and what hasn't. Awesome. We can't wait to hear more. Thanks for giving us a little bit of the download. Always first to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Newsflash. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Thanks again. We'll chat to you soon. Bye. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives.
Boston Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.